Welcome to Spill the Tea, a bi-weekly download of life, liberty, and the latest in culture and news with your hosts, Dr. Robert McClure and Sal Nuzzo. Welcome to another episode of Spill the Tea. I am Sal Nuzzo, Vice President of Policy with the James Madison Institute. With me is our CEO, Bob McClure. Uh, We are on the heels of Hurricane Ian's destruction in Southwest Florida. Our thoughts and prayers out to all of our uh, listeners and and JMI members and non-members, anyone in Southwest Florida, Central Florida uh, Mm -hmm. affected, even up in the Northeast in Jacksonville. Just a, you know, kind of the worst case scenario of storms. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, it came on so fast. It was a tropical storm when it was south of Cuba. Nobody, I mean, we were, everybody was kind of paying attention to it as Floridians are wont to do. But once it passed Cuba, it just picked up um, speed so, so quickly and then, you know, turned right into uh, Lee County and, um, you know, Collier County. And it was just, it was just devastating. So really our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Southwest Florida. Yeah. And this is one where, uh, you know, two days before, as you were mentioning, there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, I think it was 48 hours before there was a a potential of it hitting the Tampa area, which was, uh, you know, a big challenge for that area. And then 24 hours before all of a sudden, you know, it it kind of veers a little bit south and and right and, uh, and, and Lee and Collier counties get hit. Uh, we're already looking at probably tens of billions of dollars in damage. I believe there's more than 200, 220,000 insurance claims being filed already to this point. Uh, As our CFO and governor have said uh, repeatedly, Florida has an insanely litigious environment full of fraud and scams. So don't sign anything without consulting your property insurance uh, company, which leads us into kind of the discussion and dialogue that this state has been having for many years about the fact that Florida's litigation fraud environment has really created this uh, kind of uh, perfect storm, pardon the pun, and we're, we're already in crisis before the storm hit. Yeah, and the irony was that there was at least one insurance company as Ian was bearing down on the state of Florida that was literally pulling out of the state because of the litigious... Um, economy that we have here in Florida. It's, you know, Florida has so many wonderful things going for it, but the property insurance market and the litigious nature of our state is are, are really kind of a, two issues, as you said, a perfect storm uh, for really moving our economy into the ditch. And so we're really going to see what happens in the economy going forward. So for our listeners, Sal, as we pivot a little bit more towards policy, what is the answer as you see it as the policy director here at JMI, what is the answer on property insurance and property insurance reform? And what is the answer to kind of abate this kind of litigious nature of what we have here in Florida? Because really, Florida is one of the worst judicial hellholes is kind of the buzz phrase in the entire country. And as we've discussed, uh, this has been kind of a game of whack-a-mole over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, at the root of the problem are the regulations governing our litigation climate under torts. So uh, you have um, one-way attorney's fees. 
That's something that's going to have to be addressed. You've got contingency fee multipliers. That's going to have to be addressed. You've got price controls that have been implemented Mm -hmm. uh, during the Christ administration on Citizens Property Insurance Company. Uh, We, because of Florida's geography and climate, we're going to have to have some form of an insurer of last resort. But the state never really got to that uh, it became an insurer of first, first resort, resort. Yeah. for many. Yeah. Uh, and so all of those things are going to have to be addressed. I would envision, uh, it would not shock me if there was a special legislative session shortly after uh, the election to just get a number of things done in that environment. Uh, Our friends at the Florida Justice Reform Institute have been kind of partnering with us, writing papers on their own, advocating uh, before the legislature for real tort reform. Uh, The challenge has always been Florida's trial bar has a very influential lobby uh, core in this this state, and they've been successful in thwarting a whole lot of efforts. Right, and even in in a legislature that is generally kind of movement conservative oriented over the last you know, generation uh, in this one area, the trial bar has infiltrated kind of the state legislature and has been a very powerful voice for their own issues. And so you're absolutely right. Again, this is this is one of the very few issues here in the state of Florida that really provides a black mark to our, our wonderful state. Yeah, on the, on the policy front, I would envision a robust uh, dialogue, debate, uh, and, and reforms being proposed and voted on uh, in the short term. Uh, I would like to commend uh, the administration for yeah. their response. I mean, even uh, we're here uh, just the other day, I think it was, uh, Joe Biden uh, was in southwest Florida. He even praised Governor DeSantis's, um, which is surprising given right. the political rivalry that he said the governor has done a great job on on hurricane response. Um, so I think that's something where the 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 emergency management function, the disaster management function of the state, is something that is performing as robustly and well as it can. I mean, we 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 know how to do that. We know how to evacuate. Uh, we know how to get the linemen and yep. line women ready to roll. Uh, we know how to go in right afterwards with Red Cross and those kinds of things in the state of Florida Disaster Relief Fund. So we know what we're doing. The The irony was that leading up to the hurricane, uh, the left and particularly the uh, mainstream media yeah. were trying again to politicize this hurricane as though somehow this was a global warming phenomenon that Governor DeSantis was getting this hurricane essentially because he was not, uh, as he said, he did not sit in the pew, the church pew of the uh, global warming priests and a church of the of, of global warming. And so, you know, the left was politicizing this even before it actually hit. And then yep. post Ian, um, they said, "Hey, you, you rejected federal funds previously, but now you're taking them." Yeah, what a hypocrite! So, talk a little bit about. You know what we saw there. Unfortunately, when people's lives are literally at stake, and there was literally loss of life, yeah, the left was politicizing it before and after. Yeah, a couple of things. I I, I watched a short segment or a clip from the Don Lemon show, and Don Lemon on CNN was trying to bait someone from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration right. Agency uh, into claiming that somehow Hurricane Ian was a a 
function of climate change. Even this bureaucrat from NOAA was saying, you can't really do right. that. We get hurricanes. And Lemon was just kind of infuriated that he couldn't get the... He get, said he was yeah. qualified to know that he, we got hurricanes because he, he lived, was, lived in yeah, Florida. Yeah, because he lived in Florida. Yeah. And as far as the uh, kind of criticisms of the governor who, when he was in Congress, along with many other Republicans, voted no on a particular draft of a bill, that was related to uh, Hurricane or Storm Sandy right. back in 2012. Uh, they voted no on the first version of the bill because the Democrats had piled on all kinds of pork, all kinds of things completely unrelated right. to the recovery of that storm. They held their ground on principles and they got, in the end, a clean relief bill. So the the hypocrisy and the kind of double talk from the media, as you mentioned, from the left on this, is just getting... Uh, I mean, I think even President Biden is seeing this as like, come on, let's abandon political rivalries for a second here. Let's make sure that we actually take care of Floridians who are devastated by the impacts of this storm. And yeah, Governor DeSantis has done a great job in doing so. I will right. say this before we move on from that sure. topic. It, the, the irony, and it wasn't lost on social media, of, of the Biden administration allowing Governor DeSantis to stand behind the presidential seal, seal. Yes. when he's talking I thought the uh, the optics, as you like to say, uh, were fascinating there. Oh yeah, the the uh, the DeSantis twenty twenty four crowd was going pretty nuts uh, from mm -hmm. from that on social media. Let let's shift. Let's yeah. talk tech. Uh, it, it, I read this um, uh, frightening article that the European Union is actually going to start enforcing a EU law requiring a common charger for uh, mobile phones and tablets sold in the EU. Now, to, to kind of, if you have an Android, you use a micro USB right. or a USB-C. If you've got an iPhone, you've got the lightning cable. If you use an iPad, they're moving to the USB-C. But the idea that the government is going to say every single format of tech, mm -hmm. you know, kind of equipment has to run on the same charger is just absolutely Asinine. It's going to stifle innovation. Yeah. It's going to yeah. ruin innovation. It's going to drive up the cost of products. Um, and to think in a world where the Nord Stream pipeline was blown up, where there's war in Ukraine, where Germany is trying to heat their, um, their homes in the winter, this is what the European Parliament is focused on to, quote, reduce e-waste. Which is ridiculous. Right. Because in the end, innovation has led us from that, remember the two-prong Apple, the first version of the Apple oh, yeah. phone charger? And then we went to the Lightning, and now we've got the USB-C, which is a whole lot faster. Like you said, innovation is just going to be completely, you know, foregone in the EU. Which actually relates to... A, a, a U.S. poll and a Florida poll that JMI conducted and right. we released this just this past week that shows that on the list of everything that people want government engaging in, regulating technology and innovation is next to last on the list. That's right. JMI conducted a poll here in the state of Florida to look specifically and ask specifically Florida voters. They're overwhelmingly concerned about inflation. Yep. And who isn't? And the rising cost of consumer goods. It was it was forty two percent. Okay, of the of the folks polled were concerned about that. 
over other issues such as immigration and gun control, which didn't even poll double digits. Floridians also said by an 83 to 9 margin, you couldn't get that in my church, an 83% to (laughs) 9% margin, that controlling inflation should be the top regulatory priority of Congress. In the federal government, rather than focusing on regulating large tech companies and those kinds of things, and e-waste in the European exactly. Focus on controlling inflation. And I would add to that, improving the supply chain. You want yeah. to re- supply chain. You want to reduce regulations. That's what, in part, is causing inflation. You don't want to increase regulations. 100%. And on the heels of that, you've got this case where this Ohio guy, um, uh, was he was arrested in 2016 after launching a Facebook page that mirrored the uh, his city's police department page, right. and it was like a, a satirical thing. He had done it as satire. He gets arrested, and it's now going to you know through litigation into the courts. And of all groups, I love this. The Onion, the satire site, The Onion submitted an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief on this case, and the entire brief, like, you know, 30 pages of it, how many of her pages, was all satire in itself. Just to prove the point that government can't regulate speech because you can't determine or discern satire versus reality. Right, and the the goal there was to convince the Supreme Court to take up the case involving free speech and and qualified immunity. It was just outrageous, unbelievable. So we turn then to... Elon. Elon Musk. Yeah. Who is now re-proposing to buy Twitter. Yep. Um, People are going crazy on both sides. Uh, what do you think about Elon Musk buying I, Twitter? Well, personally, I think Twitter is um, largely becoming more and more irrelevant to what we do day to day. And that is a function of just the insanity that's on there. Um, and so I think anything that can kind of take Twitter as a platform and move it into a different direction, a black swan event of some sort, is potentially good. It's better than the status quo. So I'm all for Elon buying it and doing whatever he thinks is going to turn it into a better, more valuable site for consumers. And one that will also foster competition, competition right. among platforms, new entrance into the marketplace. So I think it's Obviously going to the be free speech component. Yeah, it's going to be a valuable, um, uh, a, a valuable purchase in the long run for everyone, in my opinion. Um, my question, though, is he referenced this like this. X app. It, mm-hmm. It's like he's got some idea in his head. The which, everything app. The everything app, which I have like, it's like one of those things where I wonder if he's just saying something to spark like right. people's, yeah. you know, brains or if he's got some, you know, genius plan that, that you know, I can't comprehend. Right. It's going to be interesting to see. I hope he buys it just to watch. It's just such a fun kind of quasi train wreck to watch this whole Twitter sphere. Yeah. And what's going on? You're right. It has absolutely become, in many, in in some sense, kind of an echo chamber of of people just arguing back and forth, and not not relevant to most folks' daily sure. lives. But sure. if he can buy it, open it up, create competition, uh, allow for um, you know 
uh, entrepreneurship and those kinds of things, I, I, then it becomes a completely different bird. And, and to the point that we've made uh, in the discussion and debates on these, if Twitter moves in a direction of decentralized technology, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a net benefit for all for choice, right. for competition, for markets, and for for liberty in in the broad sense. Agreed. Let's shift. You mentioned inflation, uh, gas prices, certainly a big uh, part of that uh, announcement from OPEC. They announced just in the last day or two that they're going to cut um, their output by two million barrels a day. Um, even after Joe Biden went over there to ask them expressly to increase output, great negotiating skills. Right. Right. They they have decided to cut. Um, 2 million barrels a day. It's going to drive up the cost of heating fuel, of gasoline, of everything we do. And the amazing thing is this country, the United States of America, has 200 years worth of coal. We have 150 years worth of natural gas. We have uh, tons of oil um, in Alaska and in Texas and in Pennsylvania and across this beautiful country. They've shut down pipelines, and now they're reduced, meaning the administration, is reduced to begging people who do not have our best interests at heart for oil uh, increase uh, as we move into the winter months. This is just insanity when it comes to policy. We were were a net exporter just three, four years ago. And to get to this is a... One, it's incredibly sad... Two, it is a, a a prime example of the idea that elections lead to agendas right. that have consequences. Right. Policy matters. Uh, I I was I was driving over uh, California um, is uh, almost at their record prices back again. It's close to seven dollars a gallon for for gasoline. Uh, Florida. It, we're in just started the month of October. We have a gas tax holiday this month, but that tax savings is going to be wiped out by the price increase that is a result of this decision from OPEC. Right. And it's so much more than just uh, gas and heating oil. It's asphalt. It is, um, you know, things that we use concrete on a daily basis. It's building construction. It is all of these different things that Americans may or may not be aware of on a daily basis, but it will drive up the cost of living of everything of everything yep everything across Completely. the board completely when it doesn't have to be that way somehow and for some reason i think we know the reason that the hard left has really kind of taken over the energy policy in this administration um, is that it essentially continues to tie one arm behind the proverbial country's back yep as we deal with energy policy yep so we'll see what happens moving forward Next, we're talking a lot about, you know, we have this election coming up, obviously. We're 30-plus days away. Let's start from the federal level moving down. At one point, you know, I thought it was going to be 20 to 25 for the House that the Republicans would flip. I think it's going to be 30 to 40, maybe more. I do think there is uh, a point at which, because of redistricting, you just can't get any more. What are your thoughts that you're seeing in the House? Yeah, I think you're exactly right that redistricting and reapportionment has created far more safe, quote-unquote, right. districts than than there have been in past iterations of it. But I actually think the Republicans are going to do far better than, than, uh, than, than prior predictions maybe a month ago. I think the Republicans will flip. 
I think 50 or more, and here's why. I've been doing a lot of reading on how the president's uh, underwater versus above water rating uh, corresponds with the economy and then corresponds to which party has a bigger wave election. And based on the numbers where they're at, both President Biden's uh, approval rating plus where the economy's at, And as we talked about, what do Americans, and in particular Floridians, want? Uh, They they want the government to tackle inflation in the economy. I think it's going to be a huge uh, election win for Republicans, and and to the tune of uh, 50 seats. And I'm actually predicting the Republicans now take the Senate 51 or 52. Right. I I think 50 seats in my prediction is a little high. I think it's going to be closer to 40. Uh, but still, that is almost historic yep. in, in nature. Yep. And I, I think also that the Republicans will probably pick up the Senate, but I think it'll be 51-49, yeah. maybe 52-48, but it's really, you know, it, if, if we have a wave election, it's going to be 52-48. Yeah, and I think kind of the the, the, the black swan kind of is, has happened in Georgia right. with uh, with Herschel Walker. Right. He's got some, you know, that, that 11th uh, hour kind of right. uh, issue. Uh, so a lot of it'll hinge, I think, on that race. Right at the state level, you know, you, you know, there's a lot of talk. If, if we can be crassly political here about what happened in Southwest West Florida, that is a deeply red area yep. of the state. How is that going to affect the governor's race? How is that going to affect the Senate race, which I think is a little closer than the governor's race? Um, you know, th- that's those are some really interesting issues. So if you remember with Hurricane Michael that we had a very similar situation where there were a lot of folks that thought that it was going to affect Governor DeSantis' ability to be elected the first time because of, you know, just how devastating Hurricane Michael was. In, in the deep, area, yeah. Right, deep red area. So, you know, we'll see what happens with, with uh, Southwest Florida. But at the state level, I think the governor's in good shape. I think Senator Rubio's in good shape. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I yeah, think, you know. I, it looks like the latest Mason-Dixon poll has uh, uh, Governor DeSantis up. I think it's 11 over Charlie Crist, which if you think about the fact that the the 2018 race was decided by 34,000 votes out of 9.4, 9.5 million cast, now you've got, I mean— 10 points with 10 million voters is a million vote differential. Right. That is a massive swing compared to four years ago. Um, the Chris, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the Rubio Deming seat, yep. I think is around six points in that same poll. So, you know, a little bit closer. But uh, to your point about Southwest Florida, I would envision that they are already mapping out what a plan B or, you know, kind of a mitigation strategy would be. I would envision something like what they did for Michael, where they established some massive voter sites uh, to enable voters to get in. They, you know, how the election supervisors in Lee and Collier County uh, kind of engage with the Secretary of State's office, I think is going to be very important. But I don't envision, uh, there was some talk about could the election be postponed. Postponed. I don't think that's going to happen. I agree. I think the CFO also is in good shape. The Attorney General is in good shape. The state legislature is probably not going to change much, maybe a little bit at the margins, yeah. but we have a little bit of a scandal in North Florida yeah. with... Um, uh, state Senator Lorraine Osler. Right, with her, uh, she's running against an African-American Republican, uh, sent out a mailer that was essentially put a target 
on uh, this Corey. His name is with Corey. With bullets Simon. underneath him, right? With bullets underneath him uh, on the mailer. She's denied any knowledge of that, but you can't send out a mailer if you don't approve, approve the, the mailer. mailer. So it's not really, um, you know. Um, that's not she's, really. She's either lying or she has violated uh, election law. Right. So, so it's you know, it's she's in kind of a bind with this one. Right. She's in a district though that is, I think, forty thousand yes. more Democratic yep. voters than Republicans. So, is it going to make much of a difference? I don't know, but it, you know, that's that's a little bit of drama up here in the North Florida area. Yeah, and in Florida local races for the state legislature in particular are notorious not just here in Leon County but across the state for kind of the 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 strategies, right. I'll use the term, that consultants will often use. And so it's it's not something that we haven't seen in prior elections, but they do get called out. And this is one where um, her family background does not uh, uh, lend itself to giving the benefit of the doubt in this right. case. That's exactly right. You know, can you imagine if she were a Republican? Exactly. Exactly, and, 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 and what that's the response the, yeah. would have been it had, if she were a Republican and Corey Simon were an African American Democrat running against her, and she ran that ad, it would be on MSNBC and CNN for the next four weeks until Election Day, and the silence among the legacy and traditional media is just deafening. Let, let's finish up on on college sports. Uh, it, you know. I, Tough week for Florida State. Yeah, you know yeah, we, we got our first loss. Of, yeah, FSU's in the thick of the you know the meat of their schedule. Yep. Wake Forest, NC State, um, and then um, Clemson. Yep, uh, with Miami and UF waiting in the in the wings. So it's going to be an interesting year. I mean, an interesting rest of the season moving forward. But I will say this: nothing gives me more joy uh, in the college football season the, this this year than to see Texas A and M lose game. After game, after game. And, and I had been saying from uh, from Jimbo's last two years at Florida State that he was not the coach that everybody had made him out to. He was a mediocre coach who got a phenom quarterback right. for two years in Jameis Winston that led him to the streak that he had. If you look at his record since then, he is nowhere close to right. what they're paying him. Pretty pedestrian. Yep. Yeah. And, and so I still, I'm still bitter uh, over uh, the way that all of that transpired. So uh, I will, I will take my Schadenfreude with yeah. me, and uh, and and glad that the uh, the team with the best record in the state of Texas is Baylor University. That's right. Exactly. The Baylor Bears. UF's taking on Missouri. They're in the meat of their schedule. I think. UF is playing kind of at the margins. I don't know. I think every game they could win, every game they could lose. And so, you know, it's in Gainesville. We'll see what happens there. University of Miami plays Kent State, so they get a breather this week. Yep. Uh, Central Florida beat SMU uh, yesterday as we're doing this recording. Um, so, you know, it's – it's We're ascending. Florida's right, ascending. Right, The state of – of college football in the state of Florida is ascending. Yeah, and and, and a great uh, shout out to uh, former uh, Florida State defensive coordinator uh, Mark Stoops, who's doing great work with the University of Kentucky right now. Uh, has got them at one point they were in the top twenty-five. I think they lost one game. They were in the top ten. They They're were in now, the top ten. Yeah, they just lost to Ole Miss. Ole Miss, that's what barely it was. at the yep. end. They fumbled inside the ten-yard line a couple of times. But there's a university, the University of Kentucky. That has had, with the exception of 
six years that Bear Bryant was there in the 50s, really has no tradition in college football. And what Mark Stoops has done is phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Spill the Tea. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll come back at you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Spill the Tea. For more content from the James Madison Institute, follow us on social media or check out our website at jamesmadison.org.